2006, February 15th. Today will be Lecture 29, When Galaxies Collide on Interacting Galaxies. We'll begin in just a moment. All right. So, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Our, uh, our podcast reach is getting truly international. I got a fan letter yesterday from Norway, so I don't know where this is quite going yet. Um, today we're going to be continuing along this theme of yesterday, started yesterday, of looking at the largest structures in the universe. And one of the sort of themes that came across yesterday, as always, is the fact that gravity is the major force that sculpts large-scale structure in the universe. It's responsible for holding galaxies together with all their stars. Gravity holds galaxies together into groups, larger assemblages of galaxies into clusters. Clusters are held into superclusters by the gravity between them. And indeed, the large-scale structure, the foamy voids and filaments and walls that we see on scales of hundreds of megaparsecs in the universe were sculpted by the, act, the effects of gravity. Now, it's not just gravity all by itself. It's gravity actually in an expanding universe. You would not get those structures otherwise if the universe wasn't doing that. We're going to see that, however, in subsequent weeks. So what I want to do today is then today and tomorrow's lectures are going to now look in detail back at galaxies individually. But we're going to look at two particular aspects of these galaxies which give us some hints as to the physics behind them. I mentioned that we've gone through a long period of describing galaxies. Now we want to talk a bit about how galaxies work. We're on to that second question, what is the physics of galaxies? It's not as clear a story as with stars, because galaxies are complex, gravitationally bound systems, rather than single entities like stars. Today we're going to see one of the, what was somewhat surprising to people in the, in the 1960s and 70s when it was first realized what was going on, that when they, people photographed the sky, they saw a number of these so-called peculiar galaxies, galaxies that were not just irregulars, but they simply defied classification. And an example of this particular one is sitting on my, on my title slide today. This is the mice, as it's called, because it looks like a pair of long-tailed mice doing a little pas de deux here. What's actually going on is this is a galaxy collision. And what people have come to realize in the last decade or so is that galaxy collisions and interactions between galaxies, in fact, are extremely important for what gives galaxies their shape and, in fact, is the mechanism by which galaxies grow. So today we're going to talk about what happens when two galaxies collide, galaxy interactions. The key ideas, what we're really going to be exploring today are tidal interactions among galaxies. And these come in a variety of forms. We can have very close tidal interactions where the two galaxies simply pass by in the night and raise tides in each other as they pass. We'll actually then go into actual galaxy collisions, both galaxy, galaxy and collisions where they hit at a glancing blow or head-on so-called splash encounters. And we're going to see the aftermath of these things and some of the work that has been done to understand what the physics of these encounters is. One of the interesting outcomes of these is that galaxies are filled of, especially spiral galaxies, are full of gas. And when two gas-rich spirals collide together, those molecular clouds colliding, which is actually what collides, the stars themselves don't collide, can actually trigger immense bursts of star formation, so much so that some of these galaxies are actually converting all of their interstellar gas into stars at an absolutely maximal rate. We call these starbursts. 
This leads to an effect known as mergers and galaxy cannibalism. These are the ways in which galaxies actually grow by the consequences of these galaxy collisions. And finally, at the end of the lecture, it's going to turn out that even our own Milky Way and Andromeda may not be immune from the effects of galaxy interactions. There is a speculation at this point based on still data which is still somewhat preliminary that the Milky Way and Andromeda may in fact be on a collision course and people have begun to simulate what will happen not right away but perhaps three billion, one to three billion years in the future if indeed their orbits do intersect and we'll see a, a very cool simulation of what that's done done on a supercomputer by John Dubinsky up at the uh, in Canada, Canada Institute of Theoretical Astrophysics in Toronto. Now when we talked about stars we look at our own sun. We know that the nearest sun to a star to our own is Alpha Centauri, Proxima Centauri, that group. They're approximately four light years away. If you look at the size of the sun, it's only about 700,000 kilometers in, in radius. So the stars are very, very much smaller than the mean distance between stars. So the chances that one star will collide with another within our own galaxy are vanishingly small. You have to get into some unusually dense environments, like the cores of the densest globular clusters, or perhaps even the dense star cluster at the center of our own galaxy before star collisions become likely. But this is not the case with galaxies. If you look at galaxies, galaxies are very, very large assemblies of stars. Our own Milky Way and, and Andromeda, the two nearest spirals, are respectively about 30 and 50 kiloparsecs across. And yet the distance to Andromeda from the Milky Way is only about 750 or 800 kiloparsecs. If you do the math, you find out that the distance between the Milky Way and Andromeda is only 20 times larger than their physical extent. That's very different from the case of the distance difference between stars, where if you remember that a parsec is about 10 to the 13 kilometers, and stars typically are about 10 to the 5 kilometers, the ratio of their size to their distances is measured as 10 to a big number. 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9, something like that. 10, well, 10 to the 7 is the number I use up there, close enough. So galaxies are very close to each other with respect to their size. So if we were, it's more like two people trying to elbow their way across the oval. Eventually, the chances that two people blindly blundering across the oval will crash into each other is very, very large. And so we expect to find that galaxies interacting with each other is going to be important. In fact, if you do the math, if you ask, how fast are galaxies moving relative to each other in their orbits due to gravity? These motions tend to have speeds of three, four, five hundred kilometers per second. You know their physical size, you can actually compute the probability, how long you should have to wait until in a typical cluster or group, even a loose group of galaxies like the Milky Way, that two galaxies will actually have a close encounter. And the answer turns out to be a couple of times over the course of the last 10, 15 billion years. Now, we haven't seen anything like that in the in Milky Way per se, but that's not to say it won't happen in the future. It's only a probability. So it's something we should be able to go out and look for and see is not common. It doesn't happen to everybody all the time. But the duty cycle is enough. We should see examples of galaxy collisions and encounters wherever we look in the universe. Now, the way galaxies are going to interact is primarily through gravitation. It's the only force that's going to work over these very, very large scales, and galaxies are very, very massive. Now, because they're physically so large, the two galaxies, when they pass by each other, even if they don't overlap and collide in the sense of a glancing blow, they're still going to raise tides in them. If you remember back to Astronomy 161, which I hope your instructors covered it, I know I did, that 
tides are raised when there is a difference in gravitational force from one side of a physically large object to another. So, for example, ocean tides are raised in the Earth by the effect of the sun and the moon because there is a small but measurable difference in the gravitational force on the near side, which is closer, and the far side, which is further away. Remember, the gravitational force falls off as 1 over the distance squared. So that difference in force leads to a stretching and also leads to a squeeze in the orthogonal directions. So when you get to a galaxy, which is fairly large compared to the distance between them, you expect that the near side of the galaxies, when you have two of them passing, is going to raise a tide and is going to begin to distort it because the stars are orbiting around the center of mass of their galaxy. But if another galaxy comes into place, then those stars are going to feel not only the gravity of their own galaxy, but the gravity of the other galaxy. And they're going to distort. They're going to leave their normal orbits and move in slightly different ways. And it's that moving together within that galaxy of those hundreds of billions of stars that gives them their shape. What's more important, what's actually fairly surprising, is that you can get very dramatic changes in the shape of a galaxy without an actual collision. They don't actually have to overlap to begin to stretch and distort. In some cases, in fact, these close passages can raise tides, can actually raise large spiral arms in some of these objects. Now, most of the peculiar galaxies, the galaxies that simply defy classification, but are clearly very, very large, they look like spirals that someone's kind of messed up, turn out on close examination to all, 100%, to be at some stage of either a close passage or a direct collision between two galaxies. And this may sound like, seem like it's going to be pretty obvious when I show it, but actually it took us a long time to figure it out. There were lots and lots of weird galaxies. People made catalogs of weird galaxies. Sometimes they called them eruptive and post-eruptive because they kind of looked like they were exploding from the inside. And what people actually realized when they thought about it, it actually turned out to be a couple of brothers, Alar and Yuri Tumre at MIT, who did the first computer simulations, realized these galaxies weren't exploding, they were colliding. And we were seeing the effects of very rapidly changing gravitational fields on these very, very large systems. So this is kind of the picture that you should kind of get in your head here. We have a big galaxy, a disk, well, I'm going to do a pair of disk galaxies, and they're orbiting each other. This might be a hyperbolic orbit. This galaxy is just simply passing by in the night. Newton tells us they feel each other's mutual gravity. They move about their common center of mass. But remember, these aren't two cannonballs passing each other or two planets. These are two clouds of stars. They're loose. The stars are orbiting their own center of mass. They now begin to feel the gravity of the other object. On the near side, these stars feel a very strong gravitational pull. Because they're much closer, gravitational force increases as 1 over distance squared. On the far side, the gravitational field is less. Similarly, you would raise tides in the companion as well. But I'll just pay attention to the big guy here. Because the big ones are looser and fluffier, and they, in fact, have the more dramatic effects on them. So the effect is that you actually get a stretch of the galaxy. You actually pull it out. It's quite remarkable that the small galaxy, because it's actually more compact, is going to have less of a tidal effect on it overall because the difference between front and back side is a smaller fraction of the distance from the other galaxy. So you get this rather odd effect. The bigger you are, the more you are affected by the tidal fields that are raised in these close passing encounters. One of my colleagues once joked that it's actually equivalent to seeing a mouse run underneath the legs of an elephant and watch the elephant turn into something else. It's really quite dramatic, whereas the mouse continues along its way. 
Small galaxies are less affected at the outset in these close passages, unless, of course, that small galaxy has a direct collision, at which point it will merge with the larger galaxy and have a tremendous effect upon that galaxy, as we'll see. So here's a couple of beautiful pictures. Um, I'm going to, pardon me, I'm going to just cut the lights here just so it's a lot easier to see. Um, This is a beautiful picture from the Hubble Space Telescope of two galaxies. The spiral in the front is actually passing in front of the spiral behind. You can actually see the silhouette of the dust and gas in this spiral arm here continue across the face of this galaxy. It's one of those few times when you can actually sense depth in space. And what's happening is they're passing each other by on sort of a long hyperbolic orbit. They really don't overlap. They're just one's passing behind the other, and this is just our line of sight. But you can see how this background galaxy is stretched out here into kind of this funny sort of Egyptian-like eye shape. In fact, it's referred to as an ocular galaxy. And you can even see the spiral arms in this galaxy are getting slightly extended and woofly. This is actually some work. Uh, one of the people responsible for this particular picture is Michelle Rallis, who's a, an instructor in the physics department here at Ohio State. This, of course, is a galaxy we've seen a lot. This is one of the iconic galaxies, M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's actually got a smaller, mostly old stars type of galaxy, which has passed through. It's actually come from our perspective, we think. It's actually coming from perpendicular to the screen, like out of the room, and then passing into the screen, and now is passing behind it. So we've got a sort of a right angle collision between these two. And it's raised tides. It's distorted the, the, the outer parts of this galaxy fairly well. You can see this outer thin halo of stars on the smaller of the two is actually bits of garbage being actually drawn off both of these by tides. And it's believed that, in fact, the effect of those tides on the disk has given rise to this very, very strong double-arm spiral pattern, the so-called grand design spiral pattern. And, in fact, you can, it's shown in computer simulations that you can, in fact, very easily raise spiral arms using a close tidal and close passage encounter. In fact, it was galaxies like the Whirlpool that were originally modeled numerically that showed that a lot of the oddities were, in fact, gravitational interactions. And this brings us to how we actually understand this. Remember that the sun takes approximately 240 million years to complete one orbit around the center of the Milky Way at a typical distance of 8 kiloparsecs. That tells you that the normal time scale involved for watching orbital motions within a galaxy, because they are so physically large, is about 100 million years. So we cannot see these encounters play out in time. I can't watch them evolve and change as the encounter plays along because it plays out on what we call a dynamical time scale, roughly measured in hundreds of millions to billions of years. So what do we do? Well, what we can do to see these very slow encounters is the physics is actually simple. It's, if you'll pardon the expression, just gravity. So what you can do is you can actually simulate the effect of these collisions by building galaxies in a computer. Now the best, most, the ultimate would be to give one mass point for every star, literally have 200 billion mass points in a, in a spiral like the Milky Way, all the gas, the gravity field, all the things you need to make up dynamically a spiral, take another one and then bash them together on a supercluster, supercomputer and, and go for it. The problem is we really don't have enough supercomputer power to be able to do a one-to-one one, one star-for-star simulation. 
So we have to not so much cheat a little bit, but make a few approximations, which it turns out that the systems are big enough. You can do this. It's a very well-defined problem. In fact, it's a, it's a real art. There's a handful of people who've written these beautiful codes, and they use some of the fastest computers ever built to do this cal kind of calculation. Basically, all you do is you it's kind of say all you have to do, for you're doing it for tens of millions of points, you're solving Newton's laws, and you throw in a bit of gas and stars. Now, the gas actually complicates things, but people are doing the best they can. But the thing about the supercomputer is I can run it super fast. I can run it time steps of a million years or 200 million years per second because I'm simply limited by how fast the supercomputer can run. So I can actually make a movie of billions of years of evolution and let them play out. Now, it requires the fastest supercomputers we've got. And some of our people here do simulations like that. We have a super, we have a, literally a cluster of computers. In this case, it's actually a, called a Beowulf cluster. has 26 separate processors all sitting in a big rack that run simultaneously. And that's a small one. There are people who are using clusters now of 200 to 500 processors running in parallel, solving Newton's laws for millions of data points. And I'm going to show you some of the simulations. These guys actually really, they get to have some sort of fun for all their labor because they get to make some of the coolest movies in astronomy. Now let's look at some of the ways in which these things can come together. And the stuff I'm going to be describing is informed by both what we see by looking at you know, various, various interactions I'm going to catch in various stages, early, late, middle, and full-on crash. And then computer simulations are run to try to interpret what it is we're seeing. And that's kind of the rest of the story I'm going to be telling today is sort of the mixture of observation plus computer simulation to sort of speed the time scale up. Now, close passages, just two people, two galaxies passing in the night will raise tides in each other as they pass, but they really won't fundamentally alter the galaxy in some way. They may change their shape, they may get a little spiral arms, a little extra star formation, but you don't really get a massive dramatic change in the structure of the galaxies. Direct collisions, however, where the galaxies actually overlap and begin to intermingle are much, much more dramatic. The tides are much stronger because you're much closer, so the difference in gravitational force from one side to the other is very much larger. Furthermore, these interactions actually can begin to tear the two galaxies apart. You actually rip off gigantic what are called tidal tails. The amount of orbital energy that's involved in the two galaxies orbiting each other, some of that energy gets injected into the stars and they literally escape from the gravitational field of the two galaxies combined. So you can actually spray stars into intergalactic space and release them from their own home galaxies. And in fact, we see such intergalactic stars in places like the Virgo cluster. There may even be some in our own local group, but we haven't actually detected them for sure yet. Now, what's interesting is even though the effects on the galaxies are dramatic, individual stars do not collide, even when the two galaxies completely interpenetrate each other. And the reason is simply that the average distance between a star compared to its size is of order of the power 10 to the 7 or 10 to the 8. So these things are like basically, even though the two galaxies are coming together and almost literally in the process of merging, their stars will pass together about the same as two flies crossing the Grand Canyon 10 miles apart. Yeah, okay, they're going in different directions, but there's no way they're going to have a head-on collision. So star collisions are exceedingly rare. The galaxies, the systems, are colliding only in the sense that they are interpenetrating, they're raising strong tides, 
their gas clouds can collide, and that's going to be important to us for raising starbursts, but the stars themselves don't collide. Now, I got ahead of myself there, sorry about that. The gas clouds do collide, because the gas clouds are many parsecs across. They are about as big as the space between them in many cases. In our own galaxy, all by itself, when they happen to have this slight orbital pileup in the spiral arms, the collision between molecular clouds triggers bright star formation. That's why we see O and B stars and H2 regions lighting up the spiral arms. In a galaxy-galaxy collision, these things literally come together and smack. So the stars just pass right on through, but the gas stops cold. That's a huge shock. And so suddenly you take the interstellar media of both of these galaxies and you take most of its molecular clouds and say, start forming stars right now, as fast as you possibly can. And so the star formation rate in these galaxies goes way up because it happens abruptly on that splat time scale. We call it a starburst, an immense amount of star formation occurring all at once. Here's an example of one of these colliding galaxies. This is from my cover picture today. This is the MICE. It's a beautiful Hubble Space Telescope picture. If you'll forgive me for a moment while I dim the lights. What does this thing actually look like in a computer? Look at this thing. You see, or see a tail, tidal tails getting ripped off the galaxies. Some of these stars and gas and clusters are actually going to escape from the galaxies. Some of them might be self-gravitating and actually coalesce into little tiny dwarf galaxies. In fact, some people think that some of the dwarf galaxies out there in the universe are, in fact, debris left over from these tidal tails. Now, I don't 100% agree with that interpretation because that makes certain predictions about what we should see for the metallicity of these gases, which isn't fully borne out, but there are good examples for a few of these being the case. This is a beautiful simulation by John Dubinsky at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. It shows two spiral galaxies beginning to come together. This is now a computer simulation. John's a real artist. And they begin to tidally interact. And you can see how suddenly you're beginning to tear these tails out. What's happening is you're giving an impulsive acceleration to those stars, and you begin to fling them to large radius. They're suddenly moving way faster than their earlier circular speed, so they suddenly go into long elliptical orbits. Some of them, in fact, splash out and leave the galaxy entirely. As the collision continues, eventually the two objects will begin to fall together. Now you can see it looks like the mice in that previous picture. The long tail of the one, and now they undergo a second collision. There's friction in this process called dynamical friction, and they actually, the centers of them, you can see the centers, begun to splash together. And if I could look at the mice a billion years from now or two billion years from now, it would look like a god-awful mess. You can see, again, the remnant tails far away, and in the middle, the two centers of these galaxies have actually begun to merge and fall together. So we've taken two galaxies, collided them together, we get this awful train wreck, but what comes out of that train wreck is in many ways a brand new galaxy. This is very different. When you crash two cars together, you don't get a new car. However, when you crash two galaxies together, what does come out is a brand new type of galaxy. Now, there's an interesting kind of collision that can occur called a splash encounter. This is where, oops, sorry about that. This is where a very small galaxy basically hits the bullseye in a big old disk galaxy. It basically moves along and goes right through the center in a direct collision. 
it's moving really fast. So what you get is kind of an impulsive splash as it goes through the disk of gas and stars. Literally a splash. The, basically, the thing goes in, it raises a tide, the galaxy rises up to meet it, the a little galaxy blasts on through, and then the rest of the galaxy now relaxes and it begins oscillating back and forth like someone's just hit a hoop sheet and is sitting there oscillating back and forth. These waves go crushing out through the galaxy, sweeping up molecular clouds, causing them to collide, inducing star formation. And you trigger a ring of star formation, just like a ring going outward from where you threw a rock into a pond. The intruder galaxy just simply passes on through. It might get a little bit tidally distorted, but it's a small, compact thing, and so it just keeps on cruising through but it's left a big mess in its wake. So these splash encounters are bullseyes. They're a small, fast-moving thing hitting a big, fat disk. Here's an example of one of these. It's got the wonderfully mellifluous name of AMO 644-741. It's a beautiful ring galaxy seen down in the southern hemisphere. This is a Hubble Space Telescope picture. The intruder galaxy is actually no one knows where the intruder galaxy is on this one, and I think it's actually off the field. This is actually just a background galaxy. This was a normal spiral, probably looked more or less like this one over here to the left. The intruder probably came in right about off-center and splashed through, and now what you're seeing is the ring of star formation as that wave that was additionally induced by the initial splash is slowly working its way out through the galaxy. And you see this sort of off-center splash was sort of telling you it occurred off-center. These ring galaxies are rather rare. There's a couple of them. One's called the cartwheel, this sort of a bullseye type of galaxy. There's a number of these that are seen around in the sky, and they've been successfully modeled as these kind of bullseye collisions. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find any movies of bullseye collisions that weren't really ugly looking. So we'll just sort of have to pass that one along. Now, what are the outcomes of these very close collisions and these bullseye collisions is that they get a really, really intense star formation. You get millions of O and B stars forming all at once. O and B stars on the main sequence, you'll remember, are extremely luminous compared to their mass. So the consequence is that a small number of very hot blue stars completely distorts the appearance of the galaxy. So the underlying structure is being distorted by all these waves and splashes and things going through the galaxy. When you add on top of that, the collision occurs in a gas-rich galaxy that forms lots of stars, you enhance that peculiarity even more. You, you just crank the star formation rate way up, and now whole sections of the galaxy begin to light up like a Christmas tree. Now this lighting up comes at a cost, and the cost is you're very quickly turning your gas into stars, you will very rapidly, within basically about one orbit time, or about 100 million years, consume almost all of your gas. And in fact, in some of the most violent starbursts, what gas is left behind, all those O and B stars, you form thousands or millions or even a billion O and B stars, at some point, they're going to start to die as supernovae. And so these things start going off like firecrackers. All of the energy they dump into the interstellar medium heats the gas and begins to drive it out of the galaxy as a superwind because you get overlapping supernova explosions. It would be really cool to see one of these from a distance. It would not be very fun to live inside of one. They'd be a very chaotic, nasty place. The most violently occurring starbursts are the ones that we find in interacting galaxy pairs, especially those that are, that are interacting so strongly that the two galaxies actually begin to merge together.
In some of these, we're seeing star formation that normally plays out over many billions of years, occurring within a few million years, converting nearly all of the interstellar gas into stars very, very rapidly in one big burst. Now, what happens if you chew up all of your gas? Well, you won't form any more stars. So after a few billion years, four, five, six billion years, there will be no more new blue stars, and all you're going to be seeing is old, evolved red giants and no more gas. That starts sounding like the stellar and gas content description of an elliptical galaxy. In fact, that may in fact be the origin of elliptical galaxies. Why did elliptical galaxies not have any gas and dust to form stars? They may be the end product of a massive merger. Here's a beautiful pair of merging galaxies called the antennae, because a, a deep photograph makes it look like there's a pair of sort of Martian antennae coming out the back of the thing. Those are the big, long tidal tails. This is a gorgeous Hubble Space Telescope picture. This galaxy, especially the bigger of the two pairs, but even the smaller one, is lit up like a Christmas tree. All of the blue spots you see here are super OB star clusters. Some of those are bigger than any OB star cluster we see anywhere in the nearby universe. And yet, this thing is just lit up with them every single place you go. You see lots of gas and dust here. This galaxy is in the process of merging. It is already in the process of forming most of its gas into stars. When this merger's over, it's probably going to chew up and blow out all of its remaining interstellar gas. This is probably what an elliptical galaxy looks like early in the formation process, early in the assembly process. Now, as the two galaxies pass each other, they're turning orbital energy into other things. They're either giving some of that energy to the stars and flinging out these tidal tails. They're maybe torquing some gas and causing it to fall in. There's all kinds of things going on that are moving energy around. If they can give up enough orbital energy, they will in fact spiral together. So the two galaxies, and we've already seen this in one of the movies, will begin to merge. And that merger means that we actually begin to form a new galaxy out of the wreckage. The gas clouds collide and form new stars and can actually consume a lot of that. Some of the stars can even be flung out of the system. We've seen that already in some of these movies, which carry off more orbital energy and enhance this merging process. Mergers of this kind, where we actually take two galaxies, collide them together, dynamically scramble their stars. So we take two nicely, beautifully ordered disks and suddenly produce a large, disordered hairball of stars going every which way, chew up all the gas, and turn it all into stars, which also will be going every which way, remembering the chaotic motions of the colliding gas clouds. I've just described a proto-elliptical galaxy. When that finally dynamically calms down, I'm going to get a fuzzball with no more gas and stars, no new stars, no more gas and dust, no more new stars or star formation, and what stars are there will just begin to passively evolve, growing and aging. If I come back and look, many billions of years later, it'll look like an elliptical galaxy. Lots of chaotic spheroidal shape, no gas and dust, no recent star formation. Here's a series of photographs, and we can't watch this process because it just takes too long. So here's a series of photographs taken of different pairs of galaxies. Even though the process takes billions of years, there are 200 billion galaxies in the nearby universe. So I'm likely to find among all pairs of galaxies, like two spirals of comparable size coming together, examples of all the different stages. Those just beginning, 
those that have already passed through once, those that have already passed through twice, and those that are actually beginning to come together. And so I see all these different shapes here, just starting to merge, tearing off tails, or maybe even beginning that final dog pile on its way into becoming an elliptical galaxy. Volker Springle has got a beautiful simulation here. Hey. of two of these galaxies coming together. This is a simulation that includes gas and dust, so you'll see some blue stuff begin to pop up as stars begin to form. Watch how at each of these stages you can see examples along the grid of pictures off to the left. So these are two nearly equal mass galaxies. They're doing this kind of nifty little almost balletic dance among each other. The speed that we're looking at this movie is probably about 100 million years passing per second. And now we can begin to see, this was a very close encounter, you can now see that the disks are no longer visible. You have a bright concentration and a large spray of stars. This will eventually probably relax into an elliptical galaxy. This is probably how galaxies form. They assembled by eating up other galaxies. But it isn't just simply the initial formation. This may proceed for most of their lifetime if the environment is rich in smaller galaxies. If you have really slow encounters, these fast encounters are very violent, but if you have slow encounters between a big galaxy and a small galaxy, unlike the splash encounter, the slow encounter can actually dissipate orbital energy, and the bigger galaxy can literally consume the smaller galaxy. The smaller galaxy gets ripped apart by the tides within the big galaxy. Now, the big galaxy gets rattled while it's happening, but it just basically absorbs the stars and gas and dust from the little dwarf incorporating it into it, the nuclei spiral down together. If those nuclei contain supermassive black holes, those black holes will coalesce and merge into a larger black hole. And so the whole system, given enough time, will actually begin to settle down. The large galaxy basically grows by cannibalism, by eating its surrounding galaxies. This may be the way the very biggest ellipticals in the universe grow. Where do we find the biggest ellipticals? in the middles of rich clusters of galaxies. An elliptical grows at the middle of a rich cluster at the expense of its neighbors. It gobbles up all the galaxies around. Here's a picture of a beautiful, giant elliptical galaxy in the middle of one of these rich clusters. And over here on the right is a simulation by John Dubinsky of a small cluster or group of spirals that begins to fall in. Now here the time scale is sped up a great deal so it looks really much more violent, you can see how all the little galaxies are continually picking and harassing this larger thing. But as each galaxy falls into the gravity of the cluster, more and more of them just merge. And the central thing just goes burp, bloats, burp, bloats, and gets bigger and bigger. The orbits get chaotic. The stars, gas all forms into stars. And before long, hmm, that looks a whole lot like that. So it takes a few billion years. It takes a couple of billion years for this to go on. But you can see how what we started was with a bunch of spiral galaxies. And where we end up with is one big, giant elliptical and other stuff. Here's how clusters form. Here's where the big, giant ellipticals come from in clusters. It's this continual process of cannibalism. And we can, in fact, see this going on inside of giant clusters today you get lots more interactions, lots more tidally distorted junk inside of big clusters. It makes sense.
If you're going to run around with a blindfold, your chances of getting hitting, running into someone are greater if you're in a place where there are lots of other people. Okay? If you put on a blindfold and run in a straight line, if you just ran across the athletic fields in the middle of the night, the chances you're going to hit something other than a tree or a fence are pretty small. But if you put on the blindfold and ran across the oval just as the lunch bell's going on, guaranteed you're going to smack into someone a couple times before you get across the place. The richer your environment, the greater the number of collisions. The greater the number of collisions, the more of your spirals get transformed into ellipticals. Where do we find most of the ellipticals in the universe? Rich clusters of galaxies. It's all starting to hang together. Details are not exactly there yet. There's still a lot of nuances, but it's all starting to hang together as a picture. This inter galaxy interaction is not just simply a way to produce peculiar freaks, as people first thought. It's fundamental to understanding the assembly of galaxies. Now, I want to kind of wrap up today with a, a much more speculative line. We are in a local group of galaxies dominated by two bright spirals, the Milky Way, us, and Andromeda. Now, we don't know the proper motion of Andromeda. We don't know how it's moving to the side on the sky because it's, well, it's just a whole long ways away. And the more distant an object star is, the smaller its proper motion. There are experiments about to try to measure that proper motion, but it's going to require the next generation of interferometric astrometry satellites. SIM and GAIA are the names of two of those, of those missions. But there's some indication from ways of trying to use computers, supercomputers, to reproduce the cluster, the local group of galaxies, 39 galaxies, big spiral, two big spirals, and a bunch of dwarfs, where they are and how they orbit each other. We've only just measured the proper motions of the LMC and the SMC, so we're just starting to pick up on their orbits. One of the suggestions that's come out of that work is, in fact, there's a possibility, it's slight, but it's still there, that Andromeda and the Milky Way, in fact, are orbiting around a common center of mass of the, of the local group. We know that. But they may, in fact, come very close to each other. They may, in fact, do more than just pass in the night. They may, in fact, collide. Now, if we take the orbital speeds, we're moving towards each other at about 120 kilometers per second. That sounds like a lot. It's about a little, under, a little over half the orbital speed of the sun around the center of our galaxy. But the distance is very large, so it will take about a billion, three billion, four billion years for that to occur. So even if, you, even if we were moving head on, we don't know what the side-to-side -side speed is. We only know the forward and back speed because I can measure the Doppler shift. Side-to-side -side speed requires knowing the, the proper motion, which we can't measure yet. It's too small to measure. But if it was perfectly head-on, it would take us three or four billion years to traverse that 750 kiloparsecs at a speed of 120 kilometers per second. But what if we could? What if we did? Then what we would have happen is there would be a galaxy interaction, and in about one to two billion years, the Milky Way and Andromeda would actually merge together, and the local group, maybe four or five billion years from now, would have a giant elliptical galaxy sitting in the middle, a medium-sized elliptical galaxy sitting in the middle of the local group. Now, what would this look like? Well, here's a wonderful simulation by John Dubinsky. Andromeda is on top. Milky Way is on the bottom. They would pass through together and do a quick splash, throwing off tidal tails. But there's enough energy dissipated by those tidal tails, they would begin falling back together. This whole movie takes about two billion years to play out. The centers of the galaxies dissipate very rapidly by this process called dynamical friction. 
our 4 million solar mass black hole would merge with the 100 million solar mass black hole in M31. And whatever ref left of wreckage is now thrown into large chaotic orbits, which would eventually settle down into what would become a sort of a medium-sized bright elliptical galaxy. The movie's just about played out. Now, when this happens, you sort of lose identity, except for detailed dynamics, as to which star belonged where. In fact, that's a cool enough movie. I'm going to show it again. Whoops. So Andromeda's on top. Milky Way is on the bottom. They splash together. Remember, the sun's about out here somewhere. So we don't know. Is the sun going to suddenly find itself in the middle of this system? Or is it going to get flung out into the intergalactic space of the local group? The time scale here is important because this will occur at the earliest, if, if this is even the, how should I say, the most pessimistic view of it that we actually are head on, at three to four billion years. It takes about five billion years to finish. Well, the sun is already five billion years old. So in five billion years, it will be turning into a red giant. So this is actually the least of our worries. In fact, a billion years from now, the sun's steady brightening as it evolves on the main, just off the main sequence slowly will be bright enough to basically cause a massive greenhouse effect as the oceans begin to evaporate on the Earth. So we have a lot more problems a billion years from now, much less three or four. But is the future of the sun to be one star orbiting an elliptical, or it will be busted loose as a rogue star throughout the local group? We simply do not know. But it's interesting to speculate on what, in fact, that might be. And so to probably finish this off, a little cartoon from 1998 when this data was information was first released, the old Peanuts cartoon from the late Charles Schultz, and it says the Andromeda galaxy is speeding towards our galaxy at 300,000 miles per hour. I don't think it's time to duck and cover yet, but it's interesting to learn whether this is really the fate of the Milky Way and Andromeda and the future of the Sun.